I've already mentioned and Samuel's already mentioned. Uh, we do have a church lunch every second and fourth Sunday of each month um, where people bring along things to, to share. If you're visiting or even if you're a regular and you forgot, there's always plenty of food so uh, we'd love you to stay around and to share a meal together after the service. Uh, we've been started a new series a few weeks ago in the book of Acts. Uh, predominantly as a church, we preach through books of the Bible, not always, we do sometimes do a topical series, but predominantly uh, we preach through books of the Bible from start to finish. Um, that being said, while we're doing Acts, we're kind of doing it in three portions over the next three years, so we're not preaching start to finish. On this occasion, we're going from uh, one to about halfway through chapter 11 this year, then a bit more in the beginning of next year, and a bit more at the beginning of the following year. But this is where we're up to. We're up to Acts uh, chapter 2 and the reading that you've just had this morning. As Samuel said, uh, preaching is something which God works through, particularly uh, through his word, um, but it's not dependent upon me, uh, my skills, my ability. Uh, it's dependent upon God and his spirit. So look, we come upon him now in prayer, asking for his help. Heavenly Father, it's exciting to, to read about how you have enacted in history what you have done and what you have even planned even before the foundation of the world to provide for our salvation. Lord, it's a wonderful thing to see the way in which you use ordinary men and women enabled by and equipped by your Holy Spirit to proclaim the wonderful good news of the gospel and to see people come into your glorious kingdom. Lord, as we continue through the book of Acts, we see this morning that power, that spirit that you promised to your apostles, that same power and spirit that you, that you give to every one of us as we come to you in faith. And Lord, as we see uh, their experience, may we join with them in giving thanks for your wonderful work. But Lord, may we also too uh, be encouraged uh, by what you have given us and the mission that you have called us to. I ask in Jesus' name, help us by your spirit to understand, help me to uh, speak clearly and to uh, communicate your truth faithfully. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. One thing I really enjoy doing in our house is watching my two daughters and the way in which they interact together. If you're visiting, I've got a three-year-old named Mella or three years, five months, no, one-year-old Kenzie, one year, five months, they're both November girls, but they are very, very different girls. Mela is the, more of the sensitive kind of one, and she's extremely cautious. So she's not the one you're sort of worried about ever having a major accident or major injury because she's kind of very unwilling to try new things. Mackenzie, on the other hand, will have a crack at anything and will do it very quickly without any care whatsoever for her own personal safety. You know how they often say the second child often develops quicker because they see their older sibling doing something and they want to do it, so they do it uh, more quickly than, than the first one may have done. But I remember a time when Kenzie, much to our surprise, could whistle. It was kind of more of a sort of a sound. And that frustrated Miller. Miller, being two years older, could see that her little one-year-old sister could make this whistle sound and, and Miller be like... Whoops, I think I spat there. There's a bonus. <laughs> Throw that in. Um, and she was kind of like, I can't do it. And she'd get really, really, really annoyed. 
But because Miller's very cautious, there are a lot of times when we say, Miller, can you do this or would you like to do this? And Miller will say, I can't. That being said, the same thing. If she asks something of us to do and we say that we can't do it for whatever reason, um, her response is always, you try. (laughs) She she doesn't like it when it gets reversed on her. But sometimes we ask Miller to do something and, and she won't do it. Something she's capable of doing and we might show her how to do it and because Kenzie has seen us do it, Kenzie just goes ahead and does it. The younger one's showing the older one how it's done. And as a result, Miller thinks, well, if the younger one can do it, surely I can do it. And we, I think we're going to see that happen a lot in our household, where the younger one, by doing certain things, spurs on the older one, as she sees that and thinks, well, I can do that, encourages us to walk in that same direction. Now, when we look at the book of, Pen- of Acts, and we're looking at Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when we see the spectacular things that happened on that day, I've got no doubt there were plenty of things that were spurring on the followers of Jesus Christ to think, this is something worth investing in. This is something that we should continue to do. Fifty days have passed between Jesus' resurrection and this point in time. Initially, there was like a day, period of 40 days when he's appearing to various people. We saw at Easter in 1 Corinthians 15 on one occasion, appearing to more than 500 people at once. But we saw in the opening chapter of Acts, in those early verses, that during this period of time, Jesus was teaching his apostles and specifically focusing upon the nature of the kingdom of God and on the promise of his wonderful Holy Spirit. It was kind of summarised the mission that he was outlaying for them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the mission's been laid out for Jesus' followers. But one thing Jesus says both in Luke's gospel as well as in the book of Acts is wait here until you have been clothed with power from on high. Wait here until you receive the promised Holy Spirit. And during that period between those promised Jesus' ascension and this day of Pentecost, we saw in Acts chapter 1, the people would gather together. They were all in one accord. They were united and devoted in prayer. During that time, this group of 120 people felt led by the Scriptures to replace Judas with Matthias, We saw this concept, this idea of founding, building a new community of God's people to have continuity with the Old Testament people of God. But when Jesus promised they would receive power when his spirit comes upon him and they would be his witnesses, I always wonder what the apostles had in mind that would look like. And I think what we see described here in Acts chapter 2 is probably far more than anything they would have had pictured for themselves. Today, as we're looking through this chapter, we're looking at these things. Spirit's coming in verses 1 to 13. The Spirit's effect on the apostles in 14 to 36. And the Spirit's effect on the crowd in 37 to 41. So we're told that they're gathered together here in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had commanded them to do so, to stay here until you are clothed with power from on high. And while it speaks about them 
being in a house, whether it was a residential house or it's actually just a title used in a broader sense, maybe as they gathered together as part of this festival or feast, maybe in the outer courts of the temple, because there's some pretty big numbers spoken about during this chapter. But this idea of Pentecost, we so quickly think, oh yeah, Acts chapter 2, New Testament. It wasn't specifically just something which began to be spoken of in the New Testament. It was spoken of in the Old Testament, sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes even called the Feast of Firstfruits in Leviticus 27. The whole idea was that it was an expression of giving thanks 50 days after the first fruit of the grain harvest for God providing the harvest, his abundant supply. But also come the first century... It would have been treated in rabbinic teachers, this idea that there was a 50-day period between the exodus out of Egypt and the giving of the law. And both of those sort of give us a little bit of a foreshadow of what's going here. Like we see what happens here at Pentecost, we see the great wonderful harvest of souls of people who come to trust in Jesus for the first time. But if there is to be any connection with the, the development of the teaching of there being a connection to the giving of the law, remember the promise of Jeremiah 31, that when I'll give you a new covenant, I'll place your spirit and you'll write the law of God on your heart. But as they're all gathered together here in this one place, Jesus has promised I would send my Holy Spirit as the people gathered together for this big feast Happens in June, it was probably one of the best attended just because time-wise and weather-wise it was just a very easy one to get to. People's attention was certainly gathered. Now, while they were gathered together, it says there was a sound like a roaring and a rushing wind. It doesn't say there was a rushing wind, but a sound, something along to the effect of a roaring and rushing wind. And then not only was what they could hear, but there was a visual idea. There was this idea of tongues like fire, well, it appeared like tongues like fire, coming down and resting upon the individuals. So both audibly and visually, they've got people's attention. We see almost a bit of a connection to Jesus in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. When, when the Spirit came upon him, there was like a, the visible attestation where you see the Spirit ascends upon Jesus like, like as in a dove. And also, as we look at the Old Testament, we see this, this picture of fire analogies often used of the very presence of God. But often in the Old Testament where that fire analogy is used, the presence of God, it's almost like there's, there's usually just like one fire corporately over the people or over the temple or, or leading the people as they go through out of Egypt. But here is a thing where it's the same presence of God is visibly demonstrated coming upon individuals. It's an expression of saying the Holy Spirit is coming to these people. Now we've seen the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, usually like a temporary enabling for someone for a particular task. Here we see it coming upon all who were gathered here who belonged to Christ. And as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it says they spoke in other tongues. Now, that, that, just that one sentence raises a couple of big questions, doesn't it? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And what is other tongues? Firstly, in terms of what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? I think we need to separate as separate things the concept of a baptism of the Spirit and a filling of the Spirit. As you look at the Scriptures, the idea of a baptism of the Spirit is really just a description of the first time, once for all, receiving of the Spirit. 
So as, as you come to faith, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 speaks about then we receive the Spirit, that is the baptism, it is once for all, never to be repeated. Whereas the filling of the Spirit more speaks of a, not a giving more of the Spirit, but a greater enabling of the Spirit which they already have for a particular task. For example, some of the people who are described as being filled with the Spirit here, later as we go through the book of Acts, are described again as being filled again. Not that they're being topped up or receiving more of the Holy Spirit, but a time of enabling a greater or a fuller control of that same Holy Spirit that is within them. And the result of this filling of the Spirit was they began to speak in other tongues, proclaiming the wonders and the great works of our God. Sometimes there's been a bit of confusion, sometimes by the language used in some of our English translations. I think the King James Version used to always speak about unknown tongues. Now, now's not really the time to have a broad address about the concept of the gift of tongues. But what we can see very clearly without any hesitation whatsoever in Acts chapter 2, what is being spoken of here are known, ordinary, everyday languages. When you look at verse 6 and verse 11, as the people were gathered here from all sorts of different areas which would have had different native tongues and languages, they each heard in their own language. So when it speaks about an unknown tongue or an unknown language, it doesn't mean it's one that's never been known by anybody, but a language that was not known by the apostles who were speaking it, but who were enabled to speak in that language by the Holy Spirit. Certainly there seems to be differences between what we see here in Acts and some of the descriptions in 1 Corinthians, but uh, we'll address those um, later on in in another sermon. But what is 100% clear, Acts 2 is known language. People, it's not just that they're hearing something in their own language. What is being spoken is the own native language of the people who are gathered here. Now there's a lot here to gather people's attention. You've got the sounds of the rushing wind. You've got the visible signs. You've got these Galileans who were kind of a group who tended to be looked down upon speaking in languages that are clearly not those. People are hearing the wonders of God being spoken in their own language. But you'd be wrong if you think God's just doing a bit of a gimmick to gather people's attention. As we mentioned, they are gathered for these festivals as the Jewish people have been scattered over, the, over history They had settled in areas where the native language wasn't any longer Hebrew. And so as we see here on a map, we see areas by today's terminology expressed like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Greece, Cyprus, Rome, Egypt, covering such a huge area where up to three to eight different possible languages could have been the native tongue of those who were attending. Predominantly Jew, although it does speak here also of some proselytes which are proselytes are people who are not Jewish by national heritage but have been through particular routines uh, to be included in amongst the community of God's people. But as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, what they proclaimed was the mighty works of God. And as we work our way through the book of Acts, predominantly we'll see the key thing which happens when someone is described as being filled by the Spirit isn't necessarily normally some big miraculous spectacular thing, but it is the bold proclamation of both what God has done and what God is doing. And it got their attention, 
the description we have in the passages, all were amazed and perplexed. Every single one of them, they were amazed, they were perplexed. They realised something different is happening here. But we see the same in Jesus' ministry, don't we? Particularly if you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see Jesus does something and you'll see Mark's thing, and the crowds were amazed. But what you'll also see in Mark's Gospel, just because people were amazed doesn't mean that they responded in faith. And the same could be said here. Everyone was amazed, but there were two different responses and very different responses. One response was, what does this mean? There's got to be something to this. Tell us what this means. But then there are others saying, nah, these guys are drunk on new or sweet wine. So everything on the scale from there's something to this to off their faces. Very different perceptions of the same thing standing before them. But it's also a sobering reminder about the nature of miracles. Miracles in and of themselves do not naturally point someone to say, oh, that's God and I believe in him. We see here the same miracle witnessed by people, just the same we see through Jesus' ministry. Some people see the who it is is being proclaimed and the meaning behind it. Others just don't understand it at all. But at this point, Peter stands up and gives a sermon and answers that question. What does this mean? And we see the Spirit's effect on the apostles. Now, Peter's a bit of an impulsive kind of guy, isn't he? He's, usually if you think, if anyone's going to go out and do something first, Peter's your man. And sometimes in the past, that hasn't been a particularly good thing. Only about 50 days ago, a little bit more, he's the same Peter who publicly denied Jesus three times. And you think, oh no, not Peter, anyone else, get him to sit down. But Peter was amongst the same group of apostles that Jesus says, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon me and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and all of the earth. And as Peter stands up and he proclaims that this thing, not only that they're seeing now, but how Jesus Christ, his person, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his reign from heaven are all part of a necessary fulfilment of God's plan as revealed in the scriptures. It's so important the things that Peter is speaking to these people. You see regular interjections. Men of Israel, people of Israel, listen up. Hear what the Lord says. He doesn't want them to miss a single part of it. But he also addresses in a passing comment the mocking. He says, they're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the morning. Even alcoves aren't even drinking at this point in time. Dan Murphy's Jerusalem's doors aren't even open. But rather than being drunk, he says, what you're seeing today is what the Spirit foretold through scriptures in Joel's prophecy in chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, where he wrote, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs and the earth below, blood and fire and vapour and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." So as they're asking, what does this mean? 
Peter makes it very clear from the scriptures this was always part of the plan of God. You know how God spoke through, through, through Joel that there was coming a day when his spirit would be poured out on all flesh, not just on individuals for a temporary particular occasion. But he also spoke of this as happening as what he calls in the last days. Remember when we did an overview of the biblical message, we spoke that the Bible uses this term last days to describe everything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And in this prophecy taken from Joel, it speaks about the last days, the time, the beginning that is now being fulfilled in their midst when God would lay out his spirit upon all flesh, not, not discriminating, not between man and female, not whether they're slave or free, but to all who were trusting in him. But it also goes all the way to the end of history, to that great and magnificent day of the Lord, a day which the Old Testament spoke when God in his wrath would bring judgment upon all wickedness. But in between that coming of the Spirit on all flesh, all the way through to the consummation of that era of that great and awesome day of the Lord, he says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll expand on that a little bit later as we work our way through. But it's interesting to note too that when Joel speaks of calling upon the name of the Lord, he uses the divine name of the Father. Yet both here and also when Paul picks up on the same quote in Romans 10.13, has no issue whatsoever applying that to Christ. But these events are not just about the coming of the Spirit. These are all part of a bigger story. And throughout Peter's sermon, we see him keep saying, hear these words. Everything about who Jesus is, is part of God's plan, what he has revealed to us in the scriptures. His resurrection, part of God's plan to reveal in the scripture. His ascension to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father, part of the fulfillment of the scriptures. In verse 23, it speaks about how God had delivered him up according to his plan. And Acts 2 is wonderful the way it sort of interplays between the sovereignty of God. Here it says, God delivered him over according to his good and perfect plan. But at the same time speaks about the responsibility of those who handed him over and those who had him crucified. We'll see some other interplay in between God's drawing of people and, and our responsibility to respond to Christ as well. But he makes it very clear Jesus was never going to end at his crucifixion. Verse 24 says, It was not possible. There's no chance, no way whatsoever, that his crucifixion, his death, was the end of the story. This too, because God had promised beforehand in the scriptures. So this coming of the Spirit was necessary. It's the fulfillment of what God had planned and the resurrection also necessary as it was forespoken of Psalm 16 verses 8 to 11. Particular emphasis placed on here we see in verse 27 of Acts 2, that quote from Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now Peter highlights the fact that David's tomb, it's still here to this day. David, as he writes the Psalm, Psalm 16, can't be speaking about himself. His body did see corruption. He's foretelling another and often some of the Davidic Psalms are directly applied to Christ, who was the great fulfilment of that Davidic king. But also note the way that which Peter changes the wording of that Psalms quote in verse 31. 
Rather than saying, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, goes that step further say, you will not let his flesh see corruption. To attest to the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a bodily resurrection being also a necessity of the fulfilment of the Scriptures. But the same could be said of his ascension to the throne. David didn't speak about himself. David says, according to Peter, he spoke as a prophet. And as a prophet in Psalm 132, he spoke of one of his descendants who would sit and reign upon his throne forever. And much unlike the expectation of the people at the time, he wasn't speaking about a person who would sit on a throne in a a kingdom in this world. But he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. One who the apostles had seen raised, had seen ascended, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in power reigning. David can't be speaking of himself in Psalm 110. David himself didn't ascend to heaven. But the most quoted of the Psalms in the New Testament is quoted here from Psalm 110 verse 1. David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David is prophesying and speaking of a coming one who was his Lord, speaking of Christ. And the time, and this was understood to be a messianic psalm, speaking of the Messiah, this anointed kingly ruler. And the way of which was spoken was seated at the right hand of God, ascended to the Father. So all of these things that they've seen are the necessary fulfillment of Scripture. He had to be died. He had to be raised. He had to be ascended to the right hand of the Father to establish that kingdom that he spoke so much of in his earthly ministry and to establish that kingdom that was so highly anticipated by the Jewish people. And Peter summarises what that looked like in verse 36. Just to make sure that I understand what he's getting at. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He wants to drive that home. I want you to know this and I want you to know it for certain. God has made him both Lord and Christ. And when you read that, you think, what do you mean made him Lord and Christ? Is he somehow become Lord and Christ now after his resurrection and ascension? Well, if you go to Luke's first book that he wrote, The Gospel According to Luke, even in the, the things that are spoken about him before his birth, he's spoken of as Lord and Christ. So it's not as though he somehow became Lord and Christ after his ascension. It's who he was, but after his ascension, he was appointed to that role. Lord, meaning ruler, Christ, meaning the anointed one. He's there at the right hand of God, reigning according to his good kingdom. So Peter presents who he is, what he has done and how this all fits in to God's plan as foretold in the scriptures. Now this isn't the entirety of Peter's sermon. You think, man, if that was a sermon where 3,000 people came to faith and knocked down in one minute, Steve, you need to shorten your sermons a lot. But we're told in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, last year we did like a preaching training course for a couple of people in our church. 
And one of the things that we said is one of the goals that we should have as preaching is to capture people's hearts' affections for Christ. But one thing that's really difficult in telling people that's what your goal is, is that you realise that I can't change somebody's heart. Only God can change people's hearts. But as the Holy Spirit is filled and working through the apostles at this point in time, we see hearts that were changed and we see the Holy Spirit's effect upon the crowd. Summarising verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They've heard this message and they are cut to the heart, whether it's because they've just said, you know, this one has been made both Lord and Christ, this one whom you crucified, whether it's kind of their um, connection between towards leading towards his crucifixion, or just the basic thing that the Holy Spirit, one of his role is to convict us of our sin. But one thing they saw is heard in the gospel proclaimed how this was part of the all-time plan of God. They were cut to the heart and they came to the right conclusion, we need to do something. This isn't something we can be impartial to. And it's fair to say if any time the gospel, if it's rightly understood, does require us to ask the question, how will I respond? If you rightly understand who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has done and what he has saved us from, and what he is offering to us, it's not something we just think, hmm, that's interesting. It causes, we must decide, we must do something with it. The answer Peter gives to their question is, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To repent just means effectively to change your heart. I could say it means to change your mind, but you could change what you think intellectually about Jesus, but still not actually trust in him. So I think the idea of changing your heart as in your entire disposition from rejection about him for acknowledging who he is, honouring who he is and the role in which he has and calling upon him in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. But he makes this connection and emphasis upon repenting and being baptised. And you think, where's belief? Where's faith in that? And there seems to be a very strong emphasis about, so what do we do? And he's told them it's about something that they do. I've said Acts chapter 2 is very good at sort of interplaying between the sovereignty and the foreplaining of God and the human responsibility. Because not only does he say, repent and be baptised, later on verse 44, these people, they're described as, as believers. And in verse 39 it says, the people who receive this promise are the everyone who calls, who the Lord calls to himself. So they repent to turn to God, to be baptised of a public sign of the inward change of their heart towards Jesus. And this is more than just doing what's right because he is worthy. He says, and the rich blessings that flow your way is you will have forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. What we see is God's calling and our responsibility are not opposing ideas. They're told to repent. But this is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. They're not opposing ideas. They are different facets of the same thing which must coexist. You won't have one without the other.
But what a summary of the day in verse 41. It just kind of just casually just gets mentioned as a passing comment. So those who received his word were baptised and there were added about that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine saying that? You had a gathering, get together of people, someone preached the word of God and just casually 3,000 people responded in faith. 3,000 people passed from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And you know, they've seen spectacular things. They've seen that God is at work and they say, what does this mean? And Peter has explained to them what it means. What you are seeing is the fulfilment of what God has planned for all time revealed in his scriptures. Jesus coming, his death, he's being handed over, delivered, crucified and raised was part of the fulfilment of God's plan in the scriptures for all time. His ascension and his reign from heaven is, is essential and has been foretold for the scriptures throughout his time. And this which you're now seeing poured out before you is the evidential sign of his rule and reign as he sends his spirit upon his people. But if the mission that his apostles given in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 was you will receive power when the spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's got off to a pretty good start, hasn't it? That first place in Jerusalem where you start with a gathering of 120 people 3,120 that first day. Do you think the, the apostles, I don't know what they thought about the mission that God had laid out before them, but do you think they might have had a bit of a positive outlook after this day? They would have been absolutely buzzing. Imagine the conversations that would have happened that night. I said, I wonder how they pictured things would play out when Jesus says, I'll send my spirit, you'll receive power, you'll be my witnesses. I doubt that they had anything in mind what, like what happened on this day. And all of this happened through Peter's ministry. Peter was the one who spoke. The one guy you'd think, no, anyone but Peter, he's going to say something stupid. He's discredited himself. He said he's denied Christ. When Jesus said that he was going to be, um, that he was going to be crucified and raised, he said no. Yet on this one day, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And it's an interesting aside. Have you ever pondered the fact that that type of impact never happened in Jesus' own ministry on this earth? Now, I'm certainly not saying that the apostles are better than Jesus. And nor am I saying this isn't the work of Jesus. We see in the opening verses of the book of Acts that the book of Acts actually is the expression of the ongoing work of Jesus. So this isn't the credit to the apostles. This is the credit to Jesus working through his apostles by his Holy Spirit. But when you think about Peter, and we think he's the guy you'd be a bit sceptical about having to stand up. I'm glad our past doesn't determine our future. I'm glad our past doesn't determine our usefulness in the hands of God. Now I can imagine as the group gathered together those initial 120, imagine how excited they would have been to have seen that as the gospel was proclaimed, 3,000 people knowing that it was probably going to be received with hostility. And they think, God has sent us out on this mission. What exciting times we've got ahead. We've been given that very same spirit, that very same power, that great commission, the very call on us to go make disciples on all nations applies to every single one of us. 
And we're trying to shift as a focus in our, as a culture within our church, the idea of being disciple makers who make disciple makers. Each of our community groups are currently going through um, a program to train us in making disciples. So it's all well and good to say, go do something. Uh, it's helpful if you actually um, help and show people what that looks like. Now, I want something really excited about what that might look like in our church. Now, as we trust God, we trust the power of his message, we trust that he has still provided that same spirit to work within us and he wants to work through everyday people for his good purposes and for his glory. Now, what I want to get excited about, as time goes on, as people get on board and people just start telling stories about how they've interacted with people in their communities, in their neighbourhoods, their workplaces... And just the way that inspires others, as they see that, they say, well, I'm going, to get on to, I'm going to get on and do that. But does that mean that we should expect a 3,000 in one day experience? Maybe. Now, people will probably think, oh, Steve, you've got to be carried away with this maybe on the 3,000 thing. But why would I say maybe? Because the results that happened here were not because of the apostles. The results that happened here was because of the will and the plan of God is that's what he wanted to happen on that occasion. And I don't know every single plan that God has. So I'm not going to say that at no point would he ever do something like that again. The results aren't in our hands. The results are in God's hands. What we are called to do is we are called to be faithful. We're not called to hit figures and we're not called to hit targets or quantities. We are called to be faithful, to be his witnesses, to take the good news of the gospel wherever we go. And whether that fruit that comes from that be great or small, I pray it spur one another on, to encourage one another, to go on with the mission that we've been entrusted with, all for the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. We thank you for the wonderful testimony of, of what happened. Lord, we thank you that we can see as you say that you're going to do something, you don't do it in small measures. Lord, we thank you that you use people who to our perception might look the most unlikely of characters to do wonderful and mighty things because it is not within the power of their person that you move and work but it is your work by your spirit, through your people. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged ourselves, that you still are equipping and sending a people. And Lord, as we um, boldly step out, trusting you, not depending upon ourselves, depending upon you, calling upon you in prayer, asking you to work in the spheres in which we are working, uh, that we might be able to give thanks as you are drawing a people to yourself and that all the praise and glory would be given to you and never to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.